Welcome to the Race and Redemption Podcast. We're here to help white Christians move from questions to change. This is my friend Susan. She brings her whole heart to this conversation. She has a wealth of experience in cross-cultural relationships in her own family and in her community. And she marries that with the truth of scripture about race and redemption. And this is my friend Brooke. She has been researching these topics for years within the church, and she's bringing new information that's factual, accurate, and nonpartisan. And that's what the church needs right now. guest today is Josh Clemens, who serves as a member of the founding team and the executive director for One Race Movement. He has built a reputation as a lover of God, builder of people, and a reconciler of cultures. Serving as both an author, professor, and leading a racial reconciliation movement, Josh shares his brilliance, wisdom, and practical instruction, impacting audiences in both religious and secular communities. Presently, Josh is pursuing his PhD at Fuller Theological Seminary. He resides in Atlanta, Georgia, with his wife, Lakeith and two sons, Langston Grant and Duke Ellington. Well, hello, Mr. Josh Clemens. How's it going? It's going well. I am so excited to be with two of my favorite reconcilers. Things are well. We're in the middle of a move at the moment, but life is good. I won't complain. Well, you're moving and you're also releasing a new book. I mean, you've got a lot going on. Listen, I don't know who this Josh Clemens character is. Uh, someone, someone's going to have to pin this brother down because he's got a lot going on and I can't, I can't be committed to it. <laughs> well, right. thank you for taking a couple minutes to hang out with us. We love every second we get to be with you. For those of you that have not heard Josh's interviews with us before, he has two from season one. He's been a big supporter here at Race and Redemption from the beginning, and we have loved getting to co-labor with you through One Race Movement, where Josh serves as executive director. Maybe let's take a second and talk about One Race. Josh, will you fill in our listeners on the history of One Race and the work that you guys are doing? Absolutely. Absolutely. But before I do that, I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you for having me on. You guys have been big friends to me, my family, to one race. This isn't some shallow, surfacey affair, you know? We have actually become friends, and, you know, you guys have played a critical role in the work of one race and the work of reconciliation in Atlanta and throughout the nation. Uh, so thank you guys for your work. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I go into various meetings. I was with the National Association of Evangelicals a couple weeks ago, and they were like, do you know the ladies that do race and redemption? I was like, yeah, oh I know gosh. those people. Those are, those are my folks. So uh, thank you guys for having me on and thank you for your work. It really does mean a lot. Uh, well, we love you guys and appreciate you so Absolutely. much. Well, so brief history on One Race. We take no credit for anything that One Race has done. Let me just give that disclaimer because God has has done incredible things. You're talking about a brother that can barely put his pants on in the morning. And so <laughs> God, we, we need a move of God for this stuff. <laughs> but One Race really was born out of, out of a vacancy, yes, but culture was crying out. And it essentially was saying, where is the church? Amidst all the racial tension, the violence, the police killings, the dense tension that happens across races and cultures and ethnicities and genders and so forth. And so it started with a group of pastors coming together, including myself, 
uh, and a few others, praying, conversating. And I'll never forget, we had a prayer meeting planned for the week of Charlottesville, where the Charlottesville incident happened. And we were planning, we're thinking a couple hundred people would show up and then Charlottesville happens and 1,500 people turn out. And this was August 25th, 2017. And, you know, Hazen and I, who is my partner, was my partner in crime and still is on the board of One Race. Hazen and I looked at each other and we said, I guess we're doing this thing. Mm -hmm. And it was it was an interesting moment. But God has been faithful. And so throughout the years, we've been able to host four catalytic events gathering about 150,000 people in live events over the last five years, officially, six years unofficially. We've been able to give large sums of money away to the work of justice. We were now delving into discipleship because so much of what we're talking about regarding race and the church and what have you really does have to do with the discipleship deficit, a discipleship failure and we want to step into that chasm and help the church to dismantle some of these evils, but also to re-disciple the church regarding how we interface with one another. And so One Race is on the move. We're just excited to be a part of what God is doing in his church here in Atlanta and across the nation. Well, I want everyone to know that you are invited to join the work of One Race. Mm-hmm. One Race is not just a couple of people in an office, One Race is all of us, and it is open to the oh, yeah. community. So check them out on Instagram. You can go to their website to learn about upcoming events. Classes, the courses yeah, are Yeah, they fantastic. have courses that you can do. You can join them to learn more. We've written out to Rec 401, and God has been faithful. We are in the lab on 501 and 601 presently, wow. trying to feverishly get that accomplished. God is good, and we feel like this book, No Own Change, is... Another iteration of that, of equipping the church to do the work of reconciliation and justice. Oh, my goodness. And I have to do a little shout out here. I know you're going to tell us the story of where no own change came from, but it has been such a beautiful way of expressing the journey that needs to happen Mm -hmm. that when my team was doing our multi-year diversity study and preparing to publish it, we said, we need a framework for describing this journey. And we called and said, can we use no own change? Because it is the best thing that we can Mm -hmm. find. And so I just wanted to, you know, thank you guys for sharing that with us. Our Barna team was like, we are all in. We love this approach. And it just is really a great way of thinking about how do we see change in ourselves Mm -hmm. and in the world. Absolutely. And likewise, I need to give a big shout out to you two because we feature you and Susan and we talk about Susan and Josh's work in the community around justice. And we talk about Brooke and the data, which was the core of helping us to identify the problem that we were solving. And so big shout out to you guys, too. It's just a love fest today, y'all. Sorry. <laughs> it is. That's what happens when you get friends together. It's I like, know. yo, I wish everyone could come right here, meet me in my closet where I'm sitting presently. <laughs> and we could just have coffee together so and laugh and have a good time. I love it. Well, speaking of love, I think the three of us have a great love and admiration for Dr. John Perkins. Oh, yeah. And I know that he has played a role in this book. He actually wrote the foreword. And in the introduction, you share about being at Dr. Perkins' home when he uttered the words that really served as the catalyst for this book. Will you share a little bit about what that was? What were those transformational words that he uttered to you that day? So Dr. John Perkins really needs no introduction, right? right? 
And if you don't know, now you know that you need to know. So go find out who Dr. Perkins is. Google.com this man. Yes. Really, he is the, I would say, the the grandfather Mm -hmm. of racial reconciliation. Really, uh, Dr. Michael Emerson credits him as being really the founder, the person who initiated this conversation. Mm -hmm. And so Dr. Perkins is 91 years old at this point. And just full of love and grace, despite all of the evils that he's been through. He led a lot of civil rights initiatives in the 50s and 60s there in Mississippi and continues to be faithful to the cause. And then later in the 80s, he founded what would become the Christian Community Development Association, CCDA, which a lot of folks subscribe to as a means of doing asset-based ministry. So Dr. Perkins is a giant But most importantly, the man has a love and a passion for Jesus. Mm -hmm. If I could have as much love and passion for Jesus as Dr. Perkins, I could die and go to heaven today. He's just a great model. So he lived in a time where legislative racism was real. Mm -hmm. But today, he has such a heart of compassion around race. He's not cold. He's not hard. He's not any of those things. He's forgiving. He's kind. He's loving. He's gracious. Just really look up to this man. But back to the story. So random, like I was driving to Tulsa to see my family. Dr. Perkins had come for a few things that we had going on here in Atlanta and has been a good friend of ours. But I was driving home. We stopped in Mississippi to see Dr. Perkins, my family and I, just because we love him. Right. It was the midway point. Like, we're going to see him. And he said these words to me and it just kind of it kind of shook me. And it wasn't the first time that he had said it. He said it to me at One Race Stone Mountain back in 2018. He said it at the 400 conference back in 2019. And then again, he said it in, it might've been later 2019. And this occasion actually shook me. He said, leadership is a calling. Mm. And he's talking with respect to racial reconciliation, that leadership is something that God has invited you, Josh, you hazen, you one race movement, we, the church, into. This is a part of our divine calling. And he has said that phrase to me. He called me sometime in 2020, 2021 as well, and said, leadership is a calling. Don't forget that. That you are carrying something that that God has invited you to, despite how hard it might get, right? Where we've got racial violence in 2020 and and outcry and protests. And then in 2021, we're trying to eliminate every conversation about race nationally. Despite all of those things, remain faithful to the calling. I really felt like it was kind of a Paul and Timothy moment where Paul is telling Timothy to fan into flames the calling that was affirmed when Paul and his grandmother and his mother laid hands on him. And that has really served to catalyze this thing. It it gave me the tenacity to continue to move forward to shake off the pain and to continue to posture myself before Jesus in a, in a posture of humility, really an impactful conversation and impactful words. And so they made their way into the introduction of our book and we invite the church and we say that leadership really is a calling and we are messengers of reconciliation that Jesus on Calvary's Hill paid the ultimate price that we might be vertically reconciled to him and the father but also horizontally reconciled to each other. And so leadership is a calling and we need to be a part of that conversation. I really love the language of calling too, because I think it helps us to remember that this work is a lifetime thing. 
mm-hmm. that a calling is something that, that the Lord's put on you to pursue throughout your life, right? And really, we want this kind of stuff to be able to check the box, have it be done, maybe go to somewhere and walk, protest, serve, whatever it is, and have the work be accomplished. But we're going to be doing this for our lifetime, and we're going to be handing this down to our children for their lifetime. And it's going to be a continual improvement by the grace of God. And the word calling just, I think, helps to affirm and remind us that that's the truth. Mm, Yeah. And oftentimes you kind of see this sense of like, oh, Yes, I celebrate those moments of victory, but also like I get tired and I want to stop. And when it's a calling, you have a different response to that Mm -hmm. reaction in your body. It's like, no, I'm not doing this for me. Yes. Amen. Absolutely. It's unto Jesus, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Oh, that's good. So earlier, you both were talking about what One Race calls their model of transformation, which is know the story, own the story, change the story. Can we just jump back there, Josh, and maybe you tell us a little bit about each one of those? Yeah. So I'll tell you the story. All right. We're going to jump ahead just a hair here. We kept having the same conversations with leaders really across the nation. How do we live into this reconciliation thing? How do we do it? How do we live it out in our churches? How do we live it out in our homes and with our families? And really, I looked at Hazen and I was like, what we need to invite people to is the hard work of oneness. The hard work of oneness, John 17, 21, Jesus prays that we would be one as he and the father are one, that the world would see our example and then believe in the son of God. And there's no easy way of going about this. And so initially we started calling it the hard work of oneness. And soon we found out that that language wasn't inspiring at all. Because <laughs> who, wants to, <laughs> who wants to go and do hard work, right? It's maddening. But there is no short sailing that. It is going to take hard work for us to connect across races, across classes, mm-hmm. across genders, across people groups. It really does matter. And we have to live into that prayer that Jesus prayed many, many years ago. And then we started down the road of a part of the hard work of oneness is knowing the story, knowing how we got into the situation that we find ourselves in today, knowing how we you know, everyone quotes 11 a.m. as the most segregated hour really frustrates the snot out of me. I'm not going to get on my soapbox (laughs) today, but I want to because the response shouldn't be, we shouldn't just quote that. We should ask the question, why? Mm -hmm. Why are we still this way? Why have we not moved forward? Why are we the way that we are? We need to know the story because our past informs our present. And also in order for us to have reconciliation, we've got to have a reckoning with history. Mm -hmm. reckoning precedes reconciliation. We need Mm. to reckon with the errors and mistakes of the past that we can live into this with authenticity. So know the story. And then we start talking about what do we do before the throne of God? Where, Where does repentance come into play in this thing? Where does lament come into this? I mean, there's a whole book, one third of the Psalms are lament, the prophets lament continually. Where does this come into play? Where does confession of sin come into play and forgiveness and all the things there. We've got to do these things before the throne of God, inviting him in, correcting the path that our foreparents have put us on, that we have been complicit in, that the church has been complicit globally in. We need to own that before the Lord. And then finally, this is the part that everyone usually wants to start with, which is the action piece. (laughs) What do we do? How do we change the story? That's the question that we started asking ourselves. What does justice look like? How do we lock arms with people who are doing faithful gospel work 
and faithful work serving humanity, serving other image bearers? How do we change the story for generations to come? And so that's how the conversation got started, because stories matter. Stories inform who we are, and we need to know it. We need to own it, that we can change it for the next generation. So just to reiterate, you're saying you can't start with just the change. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You can't just jump into the action and expect for there to be lasting transformation and results. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. (laughs) You know, I was sitting with a leader of a pretty large church here a few months ago, probably one of the top 10 in the nation, right? And he kept asking me the question, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And I was like, no, no, no. We have to dial it back because Mm -hmm. you can't do until you see. You need to see correctly Mm -hmm. that you can do effectively. Mm -hmm. And so often we rush to the doing. And we bypass how history and knowing the story will shape us, how knowing other people's lived experience will shape us. Also, how being in the presence of God through Mm -hmm. repentance, Mm -hmm. lament, confession Mm -hmm. of sin, intercession, how that will shape us just the same, that we can go and be to the world, right? It's It's not about doing something. It's about becoming something so that we can purvey God's kingdom in the world. And so we always slow folks down and say, hold up, we need to know the story. We need to own it before the throne of God that we can change it in our communities. And I think that's so important because we see an injustice and it is a good thing to have the response of we have to do something about mm-hmm. this. So, you know, I don't, I don't want it's us natural. to, you know, to say that that's not yeah. the answer, but you're right. It's how do we respond to that, right? And so yeah. by inserting the own You've just turned this from a justice issue to a discipleship issue Mm -hmm. alongside, right? And that change is not going to happen in the world until it happens in me. Exactly. And that is so key in this. You better preach over there, bro. (laughs) (laughs) We could take up an offering right now. Amen. Come on. I love it. But it's so true. So I'd love to talk about just like how discipleship fits into this. Where are we now because of discipleship or lack thereof, Mm -hmm. what needs to happen now to disciple ourselves towards improvement, health, change, all of that? Absolutely. First, we need to recognize that we have been discipled by culture, Mm -hmm. right? This goes back to that know the story idea Mm -hmm. that whether actively or passively, we've been discipled. We are the fruit of the soil in which we grew up in. And that soil has been tainted by racism. It's been tainted by sexism and classism. And the bigger overarching narrative is the fall. It's been tainted by sin. Mm. And we need to recognize that, that even if you would say that, well, I haven't actively done any of these things. Well, but you're a product of your environment. Mm -hmm. Right. And you may be complicit in ways that you don't even know. Right. Josh, can I have you say that again? Because that was really important. I was just sitting here thinking, like, how many of our listeners are thinking, yeah, you're right. Like, I can't identify obvious racism in my own heart. But say that again about, like, our role in that. What does that look like to identify? Yeah. What does it look like to identify? You know, so as I dial back, so some of our friends, friends of the majority culture, right, there are advantages and privileges that are afforded to said group that you may not recognize initially because majority, you know, we always go with the majority of folks, 90% of people are right-handed in the world, 10% are left-handed. 
it is a privilege, right, that's been afforded to right-hand people in the world because it's the dominant group. Mm -hmm. And then left-hand folk are often disenfranchised in ways that we don't quite recognize initially. Mm -hmm. And so we have to begin to deconstruct how history has shaped this narrative to advantage some and disadvantage others, to create a narrative of some being superior and some being inferior. We've got to deconstruct that. Culture informs that. History informs that. We may not be consciously thinking that. We might still be living in a way that affirms that. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, one of the big ahas in this owning piece is like, you don't have to look at your heart and be like, oh, I see this obvious racism in my heart. No, I am steeped in a culture that's caused me to live in a certain way that I am potentially, even inadvertently, trampling on others mm-hmm. or, or not helping pull them forward when I should be helping pull them forward, right? And so I think that's a really big thing that you hit on there, which is like, how do we own that? What are we owning? And we're owning the history. Absolutely. And it, it starts with the recognition that we all have a culture. So often we, with white people, people of the majority don't recognize that they have a culture, mm-hmm. the broader part of the majority culture, majority group, white people have a culture and then there are subcultures therein. It's the same thing with minorities. There's a culture for minorities. There's a culture for black people. But as you get under the hood, there are subcultures there and they inform how we interact and engage with the world and are often informed by history and how we've related to one another. And so the idea of poor discipleship means that we need to dismantle some of those things. We need to to look under the hood a bit. And then we've got to start a gospel centered, kingdom oriented path forward so that we can connect across genders, across races, across cultures, across classes, and learn to love one another well, because that is the second greatest command, as Jesus said. When I think it's also being able to understand the scriptures well. I mean, the Bible is clear, but I think that there's been such poor teaching or even lack of teaching, not even acknowledging what the scripture has to say and how to take God's word and accurately and appropriately apply it to what's happening in society today. There's not a lot of good teaching around that either. Yeah. And, and I, w- yeah. I was thinking about that so much of, especially in our kind of modern church culture, we focus so much on the New Testament and on Jesus, which is, which is of course, like the core of it all. But if you ignore so much of the Old Testament and all of God's declarations about the sin in our hearts and our broken societies and his desire for justice, and there's so much in there. And if we're not hearing that in a church environment, if we're not reading that in our scripture, we literally may just not even have a frame to see what's happening. Mm-hmm. And being able to take it and apply it even to the New Testament, where we see God bringing Jews and Gentiles together informing one church, but still being able to maintain their own ethnicities, Mm -hmm. their own individuality. And that's so applicable to the work that we're doing today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, in the Old Testament, Jesus said that he didn't come to do away with the old, with the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it, right? This idea should invite us to the ethics that we see lived out in the Old Testament Mm -hmm. and how different communities interacted with one another how God interacted with the world. It should help inform our worldview, and we should carry that into the New Testament, into the cross, Mm -hmm. so that we can live in light of how God would have us to live and relate to one another. 
you're really hitting on another step after discipleship, which you guys like to call embodiment. Let's talk about that for a second. What does it look like to embody this work? So when we start talking about racial reconciliation, folks immediately want to do foot washing or, you know, do something, foot washing, prayer, this kind of a thing. And we try to move people to embody reconciliation, not just do the performative things that have become so cliche and part and parcel to the racial reconciliation space. No, you need to be transformed from the inside out, that you go and you live in community, that you go and you serve those who have been harmed, that you go and you attend to the least of these. We have to begin to practice mercy and justice in the world. And that only happens when we get it deep into the core of who we are. And then we live that out in community. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Yes. It's changing us first before it's, you know, trying to pacify the situation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If we want to really see this change in ourselves to begin to embody practicing justice and mercy, you get really practical in your book. You lay out 10 things, commitments even, of a reconciler, 10 things that we can do or should do or commit to. Do you want to give us a peek of a few of those? Yeah. So in the book, we go into the segment where we talk about changing the story, three chapters on it. First, we talk about cultural humility. Then we move on and we talk about mercy and justice and how that's defined because justice tends to get a bad rep in the world. And we sometimes neglect mercy, but we want to center believers on a biblical understanding that we really are invited to go into the world and make wrong things right, Mm -hmm. which is what justice is. Mm -hmm. It's about making wrong things right because God desires justice for all people and from all people, right? It's not just an exclusive idea. It's Mm -hmm. everybody's invited Mm -hmm. to the table. We are all invited to be merciful like the Good Samaritan to those who are in need, to those who are on our proverbial Jericho Road. Then we jump to chapter 10, and we just get real practical. We talk about the 10 commitments of a reconciler. How do we embody this thing? How do we live it out? I'm just going to highlight three here. The first thing is listen to and follow leaders of color. That's a real practical way to live this justice, this reconciliation idea out, is by intentionally reading books by people of color intentionally listening to podcasts by people of color, perhaps changing churches and going and listening and sitting under a leader of color, finding ways to hear and heed the leadership of voices of color helps to change the story. In America, white people don't have to follow people of color and people of color don't have to follow people of color. Mm. It's just true. That's a part of being a member of the minority group. And what we invite leaders to do is to willfully submit, to hear, to heed, to listen, to lean in and hear the the lived experiences of people of color. So that's just a real practical way of getting involved. Next, we talk about giving generously. So often, folks want to just show up and do the thing, check the box. But no, this stuff costs money. Mm. It does. Justice initiatives cost money. Writing the wrongs in the world costs money. A good friend of mine runs a school and a, a conversation emerged where we started talking about the demographics concerning the, the public school to prison pipeline, where black kids are eight times more likely to be incarcerated than their white counterparts if they can't read by the time they're in the third grade. Well, how do we get involved with that? 
Well, it takes money mm-hmm. to fuel that kind of mission. It takes funding to make that kind of stuff work. We've been privileged to partner with uh, a bunch of folks across the city, but six specifically that are changing the story for a generation. We were able to give $60,000 away just this past September to local nonprofits who are doing good work because justice costs money. Mm-hmm. Keeping organizations moving costs money. So we invite believers to give generously. Let me just add a little perspective on that because I think we look at that and we think, gosh, that's a lot of money to throw at this thing, but I really also want to support that thing and that thing. Honestly, if we all just focused in and supported the work that needed to be done fully, rather than like parsing it out in little incremental bits, it would get done. And a lot of the reason it doesn't get done is because we incrementalize everything. So go all in. (laughs) Just say, I love this work and I want to really support it and push yourself, Mm. push yourself. Like, what can I give up to make this happen? Absolutely. You know, I'm sitting here drinking my Starbucks. Maybe it's giving up five of my Starbucks runs a month and supporting the work of justice. Mm -hmm. And just let me say a little bit more about this, because often we emphasize missions in the broader swath of the church. We think about missions as being far away over there, and we're willing to give. We run into this with our organization all the time. You know, we don't have a grid for giving to local justice initiatives or reconciliation initiatives, but we have a grid for missions and sending money overseas and sending teams and so forth and so on. But I can remember Jesus telling the disciples to go to Samaria. Mm -hmm. You start locally. Start locally. Go to the people who are in your backyard. Because the kingdom needs to come for the brown boy across the city. The kingdom needs to come for the black girl across the city. We need to make sure that we really are changing the narrative for the next generation. And that sometimes means being uncomfortable and giving, giving till it hurts. And so we invite believers to give generously. That's so good. So we're talking about picking a justice initiative and serving long term. Mm -hmm. Being involved, seeing it as a lifetime work, giving what we can embodying it in ourselves. I mean, there's so much good stuff. I can't wait for people to get this book in their hands. When is this going to come out? All right. So it feels like I've been talking about it for the last two years and it's finally here. (laughs) I told my wife, I said, I will be glad when this book is on shelves because then it's no longer a thing that we're talking about doing. It's something that's done and in the world. But we've been privileged to write No Own Change, Journeying Toward God's Heart for Reconciliation and have it published with Moody Publishers out of Chicago, and it officially hits shelves on May 10th. Awesome. It is available wherever books are sold, uh, Amazon, Target, Walmart, Barnes & Nobles, wherever books are sold for pre-order today. And so you can order your copy today, and uh, it'll hit your box on May 10th. And pre-order is a big deal, too. I, I think a lot of people in publishing tip, yes, don't realize that. it makes a big deal. <laughs> it makes a huge difference on where they're going to promote the book. Yes where it's going to be seen, how available it is. So pre-ordering, do it. If you guys are listening, go ahead and do it. Get a couple of books for your friends. I love when I have a book like this available to order like 10 of them and keep some in my car. Because how many times are we having conversations with people and they want to learn more? And it's amazing to have a resource to just hand to them. Oh yeah, This is something that's so tangible and applicable. Keep a couple of these in your car. Yeah. So in addition to... This book coming out, we're also launching what we're calling the No Own Change small group experience alongside of it. Mm -hmm. And this is 
small group content that we're going to offer through our website, absolutely free of charge with the purchase of the book. And so we invite you guys to host these conversations in your home, host them in your church, host them at your business with whatever organization you're with. Have these conversations and we want to help and assist you on that journey. That's going to be great. I was at a conference the other night by the way, shout out to Transform Minnesota, who I know one race has done a lot of work with. Hey, 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 hey. Absolutely. And one of the questions from the audience was, how do I start this conversation with someone who is just not seeing it? Right. And so you are giving us the setup right there. Invite them to just go through this. Mm-hmm. And as their eyes are opened, those opportunities become apparent. And it's biblically focused and Amen. grounded mm-hmm. and accurate. And so many of the resources in this space are not. And I think as Christians, we have the key mm-hmm. to reconciliation and unity through Jesus. So it's so important that this book has all that in there. And I think that it's very applicable to people that are in our spheres of life. Yeah. I'm very excited. Very excited. Congratulations. Yeah. A book is a lot of work. So to you and Hazen, great job. Well, we are cheering you guys on. We are huge fans of the work at One Race. We want to make sure everybody goes out and checks out the work that they're doing. And who knows, when are you guys having another event? When can we get together again? 2023 is coming soon. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Details are emerging. All right. Well, we will share them with you when we have them. Thanks for joining us, Josh. Thank you guys for having me. God bless everyone. Thank you for joining us today for the Race and Redemption podcast. Make sure not to miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button on our page wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Instagram at Race and Redemption so you can join the conversation today. This episode was produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.